0: I think we're in the crisis point with legitimacy where we are at the moment, because we aren't often honest enough Mm. about how much has to change and the change that's required. And quite frankly, communities feel the impact of that, so they can see right through it if they don't think something is genuine. And unless you're willing to express your personal view on how much has to change or what the issues are, you don't have to be speaking on behalf of a whole organisation or Mm. criticising what other people are or aren't doing. Actually, if you just talk and listen to people, I think that's the only way people will ever trust you because otherwise they think you're a speaking box for an empty organisation that's just drilling out a corporate line.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break their successes, failures and inspirations along the way and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. A Superintendent with the Metropolitan Police, Rona Hunt is passionate about public service and deeply committed to driving positive change in policing determined to ensure communities are at the heart of the service and that people are treated with compassion, dignity and respect, Rona was the recipient of a Woman of the Future Award in the Professions category in 2021.
0: So um, my parents are Irish, they... Kind of both like properly Irish, and no one believes me until they meet them and they're like, they actually are Irish because I don't (laughs) have Irish whatsoever. But um, I grew up in Saudi Arabia, so I was born there. My parents lived there for over 30 years. So I lived there till I was eight, because I'm the youngest of three girls. Okay. And I don't, my parents didn't want three teenage girls growing up in Saudi. So fine when we were kids, it was an amazing place to grow up as a kid, but not really the place as a teenager, as a female. Mm. So my mum actually moved back with me and my sisters. as my parents were still together, but they kind of sacrificed 10 years of their marriage living together, bless them, so we could <laughs> have an education back here. So until I went to uni, because I'm the youngest, so eight to 18, I was in York. okay. Um, York was just randomly chosen I say I'm from York but everyone's always like oh you don't sound like you're from Yorkshire
1: (laughs) (laughs) it was a really long story (laughs) a lovely mix to have though did you enjoy school were you a good student did you enjoy lots of different things what were you like
0: uh what my mum would say no I was dreadful Uh, (laughs) I wasn't awful I wasn't disruptive um, and I didn't miss school but the things I was interested in I worked hard for if I could see the relevance or point in something then I worked hard at it if I wasn't really interested in it I just kind of coast through and I think that's what I've really learned about myself in that I'm quite self-motivated and I have to have an interest in something in order to try at it but I do think the Saudi element probably gave me a bit of perspective later on in life so I think growing up where you see how privileged you are in essence and you see the benefit of education and my parents have always really kind of hammered that home that that Mm -hmm. is everything and you know the bus driver who used to take us to school in Saudi his son was the same age as me and we were quite good friends so he he used to go to my birthday parties and stuff and I mean he had three jobs as well as school when he was a teenager and that made me feel quite guilty, I think, for not doing anything and having a really good education here because just trying to kind of get out of that system of, of poverty and the sacrifices that people made there, I think really hit home because you have people, a lot of people from the Philippines who actually don't see their family for two or three years when they're working in the Middle East. So I think eventually that struck home and I pulled my finger out and then started working hard because I was quite grateful. Um, And it's it's given me that perspective, I think.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that you say eventually, because I always just think you kind of absorb it all when you're a kid, don't you? And it's not until you reflect on it and look back in retrospect that you're like, oh, yeah, that was a bit different. And that might have been why I thought like that or that's why they behaved in that way. And it's not necessarily something you take stock of until you notice the difference.
0: Yeah and again I suppose about school in terms of subjects and stuff I was interested in what I was interested in and they were quite random interests so biology classics and business studies okay, okay. the three of those <laughs> but they were my kind of real interests and loves at school but other than that actually volunteering and I never realized it at the time but my school was so sporty and I hate team sports like detest them I'm the least (laughs) competitive in the world I'll compete against myself so cross country was like my thing but I did volunteering to get out of team sports so I basically struck up and negotiated with the PE teacher when I was about 14 and I had school six days a week so we went on Saturdays and I said if I did community service and cross country three days a week could I get out of hockey (laughs) she was like (laughs) How about four days a week? And I was like, you've got a deal. So um negotiation
1: skills at an early age. I really like this. Basically,
0: but I do also think that kind of volunteering thing, and I loved it. I told some old people how to use the internet and volunteer with a deaf charity. So I think that kind of that aspect of like giving back and working with people made me figure out that I really enjoy that. And I I definitely didn't put two and two together at the time and was like, oh, I enjoy this. What can I do as a career?
1: That's interesting, though, because it's obviously part of like, I call it like your moral compass, the things that make you who you are or the things that make you tick or the things that you're good at. And you can see from where you've ended up now how all of this has played a part. But I was interested to ask why you studied speech and language therapy
0: so it was my plan b um (laughs) so in essence I along with kind of the the deaf kids charity I also worked with the stroke association and my sister was doing medicine so I was adamant I was not going to be a doctor and be the same as my sister (laughs) Um, and then I kind of thought I really enjoyed biology I love science what else could I do and I worked with a speech and language therapist in the stroke association and that was amazing because you see people's lives just kind of fall apart as they as they kind of know them and then you're involved in that rehabilitation so, I kind of loved it as an idea, but always mm. wanted to join the police because I was obsessed with murder documentaries. Watching them, my dad and I was like seven on the Discovery Channel. They used to have an FBI Files night, like Thursday. Such inappropriate viewing, looking back. Now I'm like, what were you doing? I was like seven, and we'd sit down for like some serial killer documentary in the <laughs> states. Like, Ready, Rona? Like,
1: yeah, I let's f- watch. It. <laughs> I feel like we might need to have a word with your dad about this. Really,
0: I was either going to be like some kind of serial killer or police officer. <laughs> no, thank you. It's yeah, a
1: police officer but yeah I was the same I used to love CSI I remember sitting there watching yeah. it with my mom and it's pretty grim some of it, it is but- I know
0: yeah but I still that fascination has continued. Um, definitely and then funnily enough like my best friend from university she hasn't become a police officer and um, she's actually sacked in and um, speech language therapy as well and become a baker she's amazing but we bonded over a mutual love of serial killer documentaries too so it's kind of just been a thread in my life and now obviously it's really popular with true crime podcasts isn't it so yeah,
1: absolutely so was your first job out of university or in like the vocational world you were a part-time special constable was that your first proper job
0: um no so I I volunteered the whole way through university with the Met as a special constable right and but every summer I worked in recruitment in York so I got a job I was so proud of myself like writing up my CV after school dropped into a few places around York and someone took pity on me got help them and employed me as a receptionist part-time and they actually you know what? every single summer I went back for four years and uni summers are pretty long aren't they they're like three months and um he was so nice to me he was a guy who owned a recruitment business in leeds bradford and york and really just gave me a load of opportunities So, kind of took me on as a temporary receptionist but gave me loads of stuff to do that was client-led and i really enjoyed it and then he tried to lure me into joining recruitment after uni but i was like nah i definitely have something i need to get out of my system in terms of policing so i didn't look back but it was it was really impactful in terms of those business skills it was really interesting to work with him
1: Mm. and then obviously you entered the police force full time. Can you document that for me a little bit? Like how you entered it, what you were doing, what the experience was like, the main challenges, all sort of those kind of things?
0: Yeah, God, it's been a whirlwind. Um, So I was a volunteer special constable whilst it was at uni and that was in Camden and I went to UCL. So it was kind of local and I lived nearby, so loved it. And then when I joined full time, I went to Hackney and I worked as a neighbourhoods officer. And in truth, I was like, oh, I don't want to work in neighbourhoods. I just want to go into response team and answer 999 calls, go around on blue lights. And I thought it was going to be so boring because it kind yeah. of has a reputation of, sometimes being a bit slow paced but I absolutely loved it and I I, completely kind of changed my perceptions of what community policing was all about yeah two years absolutely loved it in Hackney and it was it was really great so from there I got promoted and I went to Brixton as a response team sergeant on an emergency response team so kind of in charge of a team answering 999 calls going out to stuff myself and then I went to Charing Cross Custody and for a bit as a custody officer which again, in my head, I thought I wouldn't really enjoy because I'd stuck inside for 12 hour shifts, but actually really interesting because you basically get to meet every single person coming in through the door and you get to chat with them in a different way than they'd speak to you on the street because... They're in your care, Um, so it's actually really nice. People kind of relax around you a bit more and you can get to understand what's brought them there. Mm. And that's something that's always fascinated me, particularly with mental health and addiction issues. It's always really interested me in terms of people's journeys, really, and their story. And you don't normally get time to do that when you're stood on the street with someone. They don't really want to speak to you, whereas when they're sitting there and you're giving them a meal or something, you can actually have a bit of a chat, which I really enjoyed. And I think it gave me a different perspective. And then I went on to Haringey, and worked as an emergency team, response team inspector, and then as a neighbourhood inspector. So we merged Haringey and Enfield, two local authority areas, and I had the whole of neighbourhoods for Haringey, so Muswell Hill, Alley Pally, Tottenham, quite a big bit of London, and an area that has significant deprivation issues and really, really challenging around serious youth violence and knife crime. And gang tensions. So, really difficult area, but worked with some amazing community groups. And from that, I wanted to do something around police training. So, it's something that always interested me. And in the NHS, my degree was really reflective practice based, Mm. and it was very focused on continuous professional development. And it was quite patient centered. And I really felt that policing training isn't very victim centered. So I went into learning and development in the Met and looked at recruit training, basically, and worked on getting it massive organisational change for us. We had a huge uplift of new officers, like 6,000 new officers to the Met, so it's massive. Putting together that training, which is now done through universities. And then my big project, personally, was around community-led training and getting victims and survivors mm. into training to really tackle some of the empathy fatigue. And I think assumptions that people make about victims and about what victims need from police officers and a trauma-informed approach and that was linked to a bit of study that I was doing at the time. I was doing my masters at Cambridge and I was looking into police officer attitudes and the organisational culture um, Mm. in the Met. So I wanted to do something with that research, if that makes sense, and learning and development was the place for me to get that off the ground really.
1: It's really interesting and you've touched on it already but maybe the other way around about making assumptions and I wanted to talk to you about stereotypes because I know that when I moderated the Women of the Future Summit and you were one of the lovely guests that were a part of it and one of the questions that was put to you was about tokenism and obviously you're, you're quite young, you've progressed really far quite quickly and deservedly so but then I suppose the question that they were asking specifically was about holding you up as an example and what you've alluded to there is another stereotype about the police force and the areas that you work in within the Met itself within London it's really hard going it has to be so I guess my question therefore is how have you navigated that and how have you looked to apply the sense of leadership that you have to direct that course and also because you must love it because you have such a really enthusiastic sunny disposition so is that all part and parcel of your job now but I'm sure there must have been challenges along the way.
0: Yeah there's definitely been challenges along the way and I think as far as tokenism goes so this is is interesting because it's wider than just internally and this Mm. is my passion is absolutely around community relationships and legitimate policing and we are in an awful place around confidence and trust in policing yeah and this is a conversation I have with community members because it's almost a a bit of a catch-22 situation we need in order to improve we need to work really closely with our fiercest critics with people who have lived experiences of poor policing and of disproportionate policing, and we need to involve them in the change, but how can we expect people to get involved if historically they feel they've just been used, in essence, to tick a box? And the best thing I think someone said to me recently, she's amazing, um, and she's she's a real mentor and counsel of mine, and she's a really prominent community member, and she's an absolute fierce critic of policing, and she said well I'm not a token because I wouldn't let anyone let me just be a token so they can include me thinking it's tokenistic and I'm there to tick a box but they'll be in for a bit of a shock (laughs) and I love that approach because I actually think it absolutely is what you make of it and I've never been made to feel that I've got anything I'm sure other people might have thought it in terms of ticking a diversity box or representation box but ultimately I think you bring with you everything that's different about you as an individual. So you'll affect change if you are driven kind of motivated too. And I think it's just about having a really clear sense of what you want to achieve. And there's absolutely ups and downs But as long as you stay true to your own values and have a really clear sense of what impact you're actually trying to have and keep trying to ground yourself into that impact. And I think that's the biggest thing that's got me through definitely low points is actually remembering some of the impact that I've had on individuals. Because quite often the system change can feel huge. And particularly in the Met, we talk about the organisation as an oil tanker. It's so slow to turn around. But if you ground yourself in the things you have achieved, which is definitely yeah. something we're very good at, is celebrating success. But when you do that, I think it really spurs you on to continue.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the questions we ask, you've mentioned about mentors, but has there been a standout moment or person in particular that you would say has helped mould your interests and reassure you that you're on the right path you're doing the right thing that this is all worth it
0: cool so yeah but, i mean there's so many people who've had such a big impact and it really i mean it takes a village it takes like a city when it comes to me <laughs>
1: um, <laughs>
0: you've kind of got your resilience boosts in terms of like for me that's my family and like my mum and dad or my sister and stuff and the people you ask for advice and can be there when you're just absolutely knackered and you've had Mm -hmm. an awful day but in terms of work I don't think anyone's necessarily guided my interest but there's definitely people who've helped me figure out what I want and enabled me to get there and when I first joined I saw a female and she was an inspector at that point And she must have been in her late 20s. And I was like, oh my God. And I was completely in awe of her. And it actually made me doubt myself more, weirdly. Mm. And because I thought, you're amazing and I could never be like you. And then I worked closely with her and it completely changed my perspective because she was really kind and she gave so much of her time and really helped me she wasn't competitive you know you find people sometimes want to block other people and not really help them but she was so generous with her time and it was really clear that she just wanted to give her best and wasn't competing she was running her own race in essence and she was so kind in sharing the information in kind of putting me forward for things that she didn't want to do but thought I might be interested in and that had absolutely the most significant impact on the launch of my career Mm. and I think that two or three years she absolutely shaped that and gave me the confidence in myself to go for things and recommended books to me I remember I read Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg and I sat there laughing because I thought (laughs) oh my god I do this other people do this I thought I was crazy and um it kind of gave me I think the confidence boost to think so, for example, recently a job came out and it was for a detective superintendent and I'm not a detective, so I'm not technically eligible to apply. But I looked at the essential criteria and I thought I meet all of those. And normally the old me would have been like, oh, well, I'm not quite and maybe someone else will have more experience and I don't have 100 percent, you know, whatever. But I thought, actually, what would most men do is they'd be like, yeah, I'll give it a whirl, see what happens, what's the worst that can happen. And... I think she helped me to think like that but in terms of trajectory I think I just said yes to everything for a while <laughs> and I kind of just ended up where I ended up I worked hard but then to counter that I've had to learn how to say
1: no again <laughs> <laughs> set boundaries right boundaries and resilience yeah,
0: not very good at it
1: <laughs> I saw I saw a quote from you online I thought it's quite brilliant actually the, the quote was, I learned that vulnerability is powerful. It fuels connection with others and demonstrates authenticity rather than unattainable perfectionism. And I wondered if you could speak to that. It struck a chord with me for one, but I think there is something to be said about being vulnerable and being raw and honest and know that like you said the associated authenticity that goes hand in hand with that but it wasn't necessarily something that i thought a police officer would say but how has that how has that helped you and
0: i think that's and that's the reason i do stuff like this is because it is that challenge of those perceptions of a police officer and that's both internal and external and that was almost the moment i faced with that female boss because i was like gosh, I never thought that she would doubt herself. And you look up and you always look up and you assume the people who are above you or who inspire you, that they know exactly what they're doing. They don't doubt themselves, that, you know, they just have that confidence and they always get it right and stuff. And I think you therefore assume that you've got to be a finished product and it's Mm. actually in the journey. And she taught me a lot of that, but I think that's part of it. So there's the personal leadership part And I think that's important, but I also think it's the impact you have on others. And I'm acutely aware that she broke down that perception for me that she wasn't perfect. She didn't always have confidence in herself, but she was just doing her best. And it didn't really matter what other people necessarily thought. And she was just committed to having an impact. And I want to have that on other people because I don't want people to look at me and think you're a superintendent. You've done that in eight years. And half the time, I think, God, was that the right decision? Or, you know, as long as you kind of work hard, you do your absolute best and you are humble enough to ask other people for their opinions. And I think that's what's most important. And I think in the wider context in policing, which is the third bit that's most important for me and where we go wrong is I think we're in the crisis point with legitimacy where we are at the moment, because we aren't often honest enough Mm. about how much has to change and the change that's required. And quite frankly, communities feel the impact of that so they can see right through it if they don't think something is genuine. And unless you're willing to express your personal view on how much has to change or what the issues are, you don't have to be speaking on behalf of a whole organization or Mm. criticizing what other people are or aren't doing actually, if you just talk and listen to people, I think that's the only way people will ever trust you, because otherwise they think you're a speaking box for an empty organisation that's just drilling out a corporate line. And that has absolutely, I think, been responsible for the last two years. What I've kind of managed to get off the ground has been purely community-led in terms of that training and that has been community led in terms of recruiting other people in terms of the PR because quite frankly if it comes out of the organization no one's going to believe it you know they need to hear it from people who they know are critics of policing and actually Mm. something might be changing and there's a long way to go with that but until people realize that you're genuine then I don't think it will have an impact. And Brené Brown, I'm a massive fan of. So, uh, you know, I've read loads of her books and she's got some great short videos online. But um, I think that's probably where that insight comes from. And I'm always keen to work on myself and better myself. So I think I'm quite reflective as a person.
1: It's obviously informing who you are as a leader as well. And like you say, there are so many challenges that you're faced with within the work that you do. And I'm guessing it is just one step at a time and keeping that forward momentum in what you're doing
0: this has been something that I really struggle with because sometimes (laughs) you look at the scale of something and you know it was 18 months ago when I was in the midst of my thesis and all I was reading every day is in in my evenings and in the morning on the way to work on the tube and stuff was research about legitimacy was about George Mm -hmm. Floyd was about you know Breonna Taylor about a load of stuff that was happening in the states around the world in the UK and it was so heavy and then internally in the organization i was running loads of listening circles and stuff and speaking to members of staff who were really impacted by what was going on and felt really torn between their community and as a black officer and it really weighed me down to be honest with you and i i felt quite low for a while but actually it's when you when you touch base with some of the impacts that you have had or the impact you are having that i think spurs you on and that's what's really important and for me that can be a project that I've led or an, at an individual level. And there are a couple of cases as a police officer that will always stay with me and will guide me as to you know, why policing, um, and yeah. why this? And I, I'm a hostage and crisis negotiator and that too gives me that sense of real purpose and yeah. commitment. So I, I kind of know I'm on the right track. I just know I'll get there eventually.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it was, I found it difficult. You touched on there like George Floyd, yeah. for example, we're two white women talking about race and as much as you want to do something and you want to make a change you don't want it to feel we've mentioned it already like inauthentic you want it to actually be chipping away you want you want to to be the change you want to see but then to also make sure that you're not being insulting or you're not you know you're not not listening or communicating or taking a wider temperature Test as to what else is going on within communities and why they're angry and upset and frustrated. It's a difficult line to walk, isn't it?
0: It is. And it's a huge responsibility. And it's a responsibility to educate yourself because I think we're all ignorant about certain things because, you know, we only have the experiences that we have in life. So you can never assume that you understand what someone else is going through. And I do think the negotiation side of stuff has definitely taught me that. But I really put it on myself to educate myself as much as possible. So whether it's podcasts or books or documentaries, whatever it is, I'm just interested in that kind of stuff. But I think the biggest thing for me is I used to feel like a complete fraud when I spoke about being interested in things or if I was going for a job or a project that I wanted to work on around this stuff and I used to think well who am I to do something on this but actually what I think people appreciate is you being honest about that sometimes and what's been amazing has been finding people in different parts of the organization who often aren't in a, a senior level to me who are doing amazing work that no one knows about and actually being able to elevate what they're already doing and showcasing it and connecting people and I think that's just what I really love is connecting people and enabling the work that they're doing because quite often it's not me coming in with an idea and I know how to fix community problems actually it's the community's issues and it's just making sure that they're highlighted they're spotlighted and even things like just making sure people get paid fairly for their time so as a public sector organization we were really keen to get community led training and victims and survivors perspectives and community perspectives and police training but actually until now we weren't willing to pay people for their time which quite frankly is really disrespectful and shows you don't value someone or it appears that way so it's things like that that you can do and it's about knowing that you don't have the answer how to fix you know race relations and policing because who am I I haven't got those perspectives but I can listen and I can commit myself to learning and have a debate and be curious and I think that's all people really want yeah I read akala's book natives and i think it completely shifted my perspective it's amazing even if it's just mentioning that to some other people in conversation and then getting them interested i feel like at least it's starting a conversation which i know is just the start but it's something
1: so across all the work you've done so far is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of
0: it definitely is that community-led training I have had the pleasure of, through that meeting, some absolutely amazing people and just so many grassroots organisations that are so committed to seeing change in their communities and their area of of work. So I've met some incredible domestic abuse victims who it just overwhelms me how brave and how resilient you must be to experience something wholly traumatic that most people couldn't even imagine and then use that experience once you've recovered and you've restarted your life to share with other people. And I'm talking like 350 police officers like face-to-face stood on a stage. Wow. You know, that is absolutely incredible. And I'm just so proud of having been able I think to move forward some of their work and build some relationships and also challenge some perspectives and meet some people who are so passionate about a trauma-informed approach that is really different to where we're at at the moment for example in rape investigations but I think is really important and I think it's the start of that work so there's a seed there now I haven't fixed it but I'm I'm kind of committed to driving it and I can see that that has given a lot of people confidence that actually They can go to other police forces, you know, they can go do other things and they've got into the Met and they can kind of use that on their CV at the very least. So it's really nice to see that impact. And I am really proud of that because you get that sense of immediate impact.
1: You sound quite excited about the potential of it as well. You can see that it's like you say like a seed that's been planted that's hopefully going to grow and continue to grow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's really important to me. And as I said before, in terms of other things, I really try and remember and touch base with individual things, because I think that often has the biggest impact on you. And there are some, some victims and some jobs I've been involved in that I know I'll never forget. And you Mm. kind of realise it's a huge privilege. It's massive responsibility, but it is a huge privilege. It sounds weird, but to be there for someone at the worst moment of their life and to give them the service that you would want your family member to get, or you would want yourself to get. And, you know, we all have varied experiences of mental health and of violence against women and girls, because that cuts across society. So I would challenge anyone who says they don't have that wider experience in their family or friendship group. And I would probably say that nine times out of 10, those experiences could have been dealt with better. So Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to kind of use that as a driving force.
1: So, how did you first hear about the Woman of the Future programme and how have you been involved with them?
0: So I was nominated by my boss and a oh, uh, community lovely. member and <laughs> a few other people um, who really kindly nominated me for the work that I did in learning and development and particularly my community work both in Haringey and in community-led training and yeah I didn't know anything about it so I honestly I know everyone was like oh I was so shocked but I was sitting at the back of the awards ceremony because awards just aren't a thing in policing we don't have this whereas <laughs> my boyfriend worked in sports um, media and he's like off to awards ceremonies all the time it's like a completely normal thing and it really isn't in policing so I was yes. like this is amazing sitting there listening to everyone's stories my parents came with me because they're so cute oh, they nice. were just so excited and um yeah I totally did not think I was going to win but it's been amazing because I've met. The most different bunch of people I've ever come across from like a ballerina to like the first UK fighter pilot. Yeah. We're just like,
1: what on earth? The extreme. Yeah. The yeah.
0: <laughs> What's amazing is you see the commonality. And I think that's incredible. And I, you know, I think we saw that on the summit. So. Mm. You could see Nathan and I like completely different industries. And it was so interesting not having spoken to him before. We were actually coming out with some of the same challenges, yeah. some of the same voting, voting factors,
1: it's unifying. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that there's something really powerful in that, I think, because we quite often assume, oh, that would never work in my industry because we're so different to everyone else. or that wouldn't work here. But there's so much you can collaborate on and people are so generous with their time actually so i've collaborated with quite a few people about various things even though it's just bouncing ideas off yeah, each other it's pretty nice it is it gives me energy
1: okay i have some quick fire questions for you just to finish if okay. you're ready okay no, I am. what would you describe as your greatest success
0: i i'm gonna go with a weird one so my chief inspector and superintendent promotion processes so last year I applied on the basis that I wouldn't get promoted, okay. but it would be a good experience. A reverse um,
1: psychology yeah. going on there. Yeah. I
0: yeah. <laughs> um, asked my chief inspectors one, and then I did quite well on it. So they asked me if I wanted to do the assessment for superintendent. And I thought, well, I'm, I'd never pass that, but I'll give that a go. Yeah, well, I Pass oh, that know. one too. And the reason it's my greatest success isn't because, to be honest with you, of the actual promotion itself. It's because I think it was the first time that I thought, right, the odds of against this being <laughs> by accident. They haven't just got this wrong
1: quite. <laughs> you started and, to believe in yourself.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I think I'd spent the previous four years assuming that I had somehow snuck under the radar. <laughs> no one By accident. Is this is yeah. an
1: accident, yeah.
0: HR at some point we're going to be like um who promoted her <laughs> So um, the space of a month I thought you know what actually I feel quite proud of myself and I'm at some point going to celebrate that and not just move on to the next thing and forget about it so that's why it's my greatest success
1: it's quite funny how self-deprecating you are but you're like oh, you know what sod it I'll do it anyway let's give it a go and here you are which is amazing yeah.
0: But It is a lesson in that and I think it's good to challenge your perspective sometimes and reframe things. Yeah it's my greatest success because it did definitely teach me that lesson.
1: <laughs> and what would you describe as your greatest failure?
0: Um. So there I've referred to Lowe's before very briefly and there have definitely been times when I have not fought for myself in a way in which I would fight for others and twice I have left jobs because I have been undervalued underappreciated and patronized quite frankly right Um, because of my age and possibly a bit of gender and I mean nothing horrendous but actually I kind of sit back now and I'm like I wish I had actually been, I was honest enough to say I'm not really happy kind of working I don't yeah. really feel valued but I wasn't like actually this isn't okay and you know this is the evidence in terms of what I'm achieving and what I'm performing at and how I'm feeling as a result isn't okay and I regret that because I think unless you are really firm in your stance around that then someone else behind you will end up going to have better. the same
1: experience yeah so you wish you'd called it out
0: yeah, I wish I called it out. And that is my absolute driving force now because my current role, I work in professional standards, internal misconduct and culture in the Met. Yeah. I mean, frankly, how topical. But that's my day job. And the sad side of that is I speak to a lot of people who feel in similar ways around different aspects or feel like they're not appreciated by their boss or they're being treated poorly by their boss or their team. And I sit there and I think oh gosh I actually the advice I'm giving you I didn't really follow myself mm. um, but I'm honest about that because I think it makes it really clear how difficult that is but I do wish I had done that myself and I'm going to try and make sure I do in the future.
1: And sometimes I think it takes a lived experience to recognize it as well though so maybe you you were making the right decision to move on but maybe it wasn't the right time to be the champion of you know stop this happening please don't do this to the next person but now you've come almost not full circle but you've come to a point where you know the value of it
0: yeah absolutely and I think it's good just sometimes as well to get external perspectives and I think my family are probably always going to be on the side of a bit protective Mm -hmm. and kind of you know find something else and it's not worth feeling like this and you work really hard whereas my boyfriend's probably a bit more militant and he's like that's not okay (laughs) so I think that's a good check every so often to be honest with you.
1: Okay, the mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life?
0: So in my professional life, I have realised it's what brings me energy people are definitely radiators for me I need to work with people I don't really like working alone although I do get quite task focused when I'm stressed when I switch <laughs> into that mode generally I like that collaboration and I like working with people so it's it is absolutely what motivates me so I know when I choose jobs etc that's something that's really important as a motivating factor and in my personal life it's the small things that bring you joy I do stupid things sometimes like try and take a picture of something every day that makes me happy for a month oh, I like and that that yeah just little things like my dog looking cute or I don't know daffodil popping out of the grass I think I live my life a million miles an hour which is not a great thing and sometimes you need those small things to bring you back into perspective
1: is there anything that scares you
0: yes life passing me by and being just work
1: Mm. so it
0: sounds not morbid but I want to be so work's important to me I'm very driven and I would consider myself ambitious and I would consider myself quite career focused but I don't want to be just work Mm. and I feel like there's more to me than just my job and I love my job but it isn't everything and that's friends and family but it's also about who I am so I was chatting to someone at the weekend and I love restoring old furniture and I'm also going to take up pottery and make more time for it because otherwise I just feel like at a certain point I look back now and I think five years ago I'd be amazed at where I've got to but I don't want to look back in another five years and think crikey you just continued and all you do (laughs) is work and you never do anything else
1: Go so so the value from other things as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. And there being more to life than just work.
1: What's left on your to do list?
0: Uh, everything.
1: Everything! <laughs> um, <laughs> got I've a, got a long old list going on.
0: <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, in all seriousness, I think it's probably the position policing is in at the moment. So I sat and watched the news last week, Commissioner resign, and I just had this sense of I've been doing so much work in terms of my master's research and in terms of the community-led training stuff that this for me feels like the point where I actually really want to do something that meaningfully changes culture. Mm. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And I'm absolutely not going to be the person who changes stuff. Don't get me wrong. But it started some really interesting conversations with people both inside and outside of policing. And, it's not a very clear thing on my to-do list, I get it, but I want to have some kind of an impact on professionalism and culture and victim care because when you speak to victim survivors and you talk about really good experiences and you also talk about terrible experiences, the like polar impacts that has, and it's just been really interesting to speak to people like the Victims Commissioner and, you know, a lot of survivors really, and I think there's such power in that. So I don't quite know what I want to do in that space but I want to do something and it feels really personally important to me. I definitely grew up in a country that has a very different style of policing and I remember as a kid having a recurring nightmare, my only one I can remember, but getting lost in the souk Mm -hmm. and that I would have to find a police officer and that used to terrify me so I definitely just feel a sense of responsibility personally to do something about trust and confidence. And it makes me really sad when I speak to people who just have no trust and confidence Mm. in the Met and in policing. And I just feel a sense of responsibility to change that. So there is that. And I also think we're at real risk of losing some incredibly values driven people from the organization and from policing as a profession because people feel really dismayed about the actions of other people. And I think there's a real risk to that if we lose a lot of good people who feel so disheartened and quite frankly heartbroken, as I have done myself recently, then I think we're in a really tricky place, so I want to do something about culture and professionalism that's not a very clear thing on the to do list. Um, (laughs) But it's something that I'm working out at the moment, Kim, because it just is driving me. And the research side of things interests me. I wouldn't say no to some further study, but don't tell my boyfriend I said that because he'll kill <laughs> me. Um, but it does interest me, and I think there's there's a lot that needs to be explored. I and mean, evidence based policing and evidence based kind of practice is something that I think I'm passionate about from the NHS stuff I did before. And there's like loads on culture. But there's very little of how to tackle misconduct and how to improve victim care and actually the things that we do focus on around victim care are what victims say have most impact on them so I just think there's a bit of a mismatch there and listening, I want to see an impact
1: yeah listening more when I yeah, saw that your absolutely. job title was professionalism I was like oh perfect <laughs> it's like you're the perfect person for that job but like you say is a it's a mountain to climb but you have got all of the right incentives and ideas and you know the things that you want to achieve but it's just lovely to hear that it's not just for you you're wanting to actually change these communities you're wanting to change victims lives and in, in a really meaningful way
0: yeah and I think that's what it's got to be about because you ask people why they join policing and i like to help people mm. <laughs> But actually how much time sometimes Do we actually spend thinking about how could I improve that? And that's the reflective practice bit, you know, my four year degree after everything was like, right, what did I do well? What didn't go so well? What could I do better? And policing should be exactly the same. And we should be asking victims for much more of that feedback than we do at the moment. Do we actually understand how victims feel about the service that we provide? I would say we don't enough in comparison to how we should. And quite frankly, you know, lived experiences and the power of storytelling is something I'm I am really passionate about because I just don't think when you're talking about the topics that we deal with, how on earth could I know how you know a victim of child sexual abuse? What's going to make an impact to them when I haven't been through that myself? And I think it's quite arrogant to to yeah. approach it that way. So I genuinely think most of this is around listening and demonstrating a genuine commitment and demonstrating a commitment to be interested and curious and that goes back to what we were saying before about the whole feeling like a fraud thing
1: yeah
0: all people sometimes want is for you to say I don't know I can't imagine how that must have felt could you help me explain how I could approach that if I'm faced with that situation in the future how could I support someone else who's in the same position as you found yourself in and the fact that someone's willing to ask sometimes has the biggest impact because victims don't feel like they have a voice
1: and they want to be heard
0: and they want to be heard and that's particularly when you've got accumulation of an offender a lot of the time taking that away from a victim and then a criminal justice system taking that away too. It's such a double whammy and I will never get bored of listening to people's personal stories because every single thing builds up into a picture that helps you better understand and it feels overwhelming, it definitely does sometimes So you're like where do I start? (laughs) Um,
1: I mean feet.
0: Start by asking and listening, I think, and then just do your best and we'll see what happens and where I get to. But yeah, it's quite a a vague to-do list. Apologies. But I'll go with a quick second one, which is in terms of a personal life, doing more that is actually taking time to take time and smell the roses, really. Um, I think A, there's a risk of a bit of a burnout, but B... Actually I just want to enjoy life as well as enjoying work and that's important to me. So I've got a few trips booked up. I'm actually going for a day. So I'm excited. And that is firmly on my to do list.
1: Fabulous. I also think it's hugely telling that your standout dream as a child was wandering through a market and being found by a police officer. I'm sure if, like, a psychologist analysed, it wasn't that. a dream. It was <laughs> <I don't> <laughs> oh, okay, all right, maybe not. Anyway, thank you so much. It's been really lovely speaking to you, and your enthusiasm and passion is phenomenal. So, thank you very much for your time.
0: No, thank you, Kim. It was a pleasure to speak.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Woman of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button, and while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Woman of the Future Awards, Network, and Initiative, please visit www.womanofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.